Welcome to Buffeting, the podcast with my wife Cass Ew. and I share our conversations on investing with you as we try to keep compounding capital so I don't have to go back to being a carpenter. And I don't have to go back working with real estate agents. <laughs> we hope you find it informative and entertaining. But we are not your financial advisors and nothing we say should take as investment advice. As always, do your own research, which is more fun. And now without further ado, on to the episode. We evolved to live in small groups with scarce resources, you know, where bad things happened all the time. We are not evolved for this current system that we live in, the complexity of our, of our world. The way that I've tried to learn everything else is the way that I'm approaching crypto. Yeah. And that is drilling down to the start, right? The origin of its creation. Okay, so we have been listening to George Soros' book, uh, The Alchemy of Finance. And it another also, book. Another book. Oh, enough with the books already. <laughs> um, the reason why I downloaded his book is because I just thought that he's, he's a fascinating investor. Both him and Druck and Miller are um, fascinating investors. I like Druck and Miller. Why do you like Druck and Miller? He's kind of um, macro, micro equal. Yep. He's, he's got insights into both worlds. Yeah. So when he said he speaks about something that's part of your world, mm. you connect with it, and then he speaks of something from like the other perspective, and he connects with even more people, and then he molds the two together. Yeah. And he's got uh, his summary on Bitcoin is exactly the way I feel that I just can't articulate. Yeah, yeah. Which is basically that could work out. It's kind of a religion. I bought a little bit in the portfolio just in case. Like it's this beautiful. Um, objective kind of rationality that he has, eh? Yeah. Anyway, back um, off the Bitcoin train. Back off the Bitcoin train. Choo-choo. We're talking about reflexivity. And this is what we've been talking about, like nonstop coming back to because it's so full on, like yeah. in depth, makes yeah. you think about everything in a different light. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, I guess it started with us, like, or me just getting a few few little interesting tidbits about George Soros. I think it was like a really good Twitter thread about it. Mm-hmm. And then I was like... You find out a bit more about him, and yeah, both him and Drucker Miller have that like, we'll do anything as long as it works approach. Yeah, like we'll we'll do anything as long as it makes a return, which I think is like very admirable because the the value investing approach like has always resonated with me, but that's just like part of probably the last year. I reckon I've been on a bit of a different journey instead of just you know following the value investors, you know Monish, Warren, Charlie. All these people who everyone, Guy Spear, you know, all these people who everyone knows, they have a very good intellectual framework mm. and just kind of copying that. Like, I've now started to try and look at some of these different investors like Chamath and, you know, Drucker Miller and now George Soros and try and, like, actually work out, okay, are these guys doing something that could work? Because, obviously, our last podcast, we talked a lot about how expensive the market is. Mm. And maybe we're going into a time period where, like, something else... If you had another tool in your toolkit, maybe it'd be more useful. Because I think the idea of like value investing is that you do your research, you find the truth, you find what the company is actually doing, you find the value, and then you just say, okay, well, that's what it is, and I'm just going to dig into that. I'm mm. going to like commit to that, and we're just going to hold based on that. And then what Soros does is he adds a second dimension. He's like, well, the truth is not really as relevant as you think, is it? That's kind of what he's saying to me. It's what not really the be-all and end-all. There's other impacts on the truth 
whether it's the truth or not, whether it's yeah. fact or not, it's still being filtered through people's perceptions. Exactly. And those perceptions turn into actions. Yeah. And so if people on mass scale are acting not according to how you interpret the facts, but how they interpret the facts, yeah. then what plays out is a different scenario that you haven't accounted for. Yeah. Even though you've counted on the facts available. And like we we know that human nature is a huge part of investing. And everyone knows that. But how that actually manifests itself in investing is that you get those like feedback loops. You get people who think something's great, share price goes up, company raises capital, all of a sudden the company is worth more than it was before. So the 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 kind of it might have been a delusion at the start, but it's manifested it's manifested in something actual actually real, eh? That's, that's right. what's crazy about it. Like I think that's the perfect analogy you brought up last time, but what's happened with AMC. Yeah. For example. Yeah. I remember looking at AMC before it became a meme stock. You did, yeah. And I was like, man, this company is going under. Like, they can last maybe a couple more quarters and they're not going to be able to raise more capital mm-hmm. or lend more. And I was like, we should short them or we should uh, we should buy puts on them, mm. you know? That was my thinking process yeah. before the whole, you know, Wall Street Wall Street events, GameStop, yep. GameStop, all of that. Seeing what that has done now, how... Everyone's perception of it has changed based on the price that it mm-hmm. is out of the stock market. And they've even yeah. been able to raise capital based on their stock price, yeah. haven't they? They have, like, yeah. Explain that to me again because I haven't read about that. Yeah, so basically what's happened is that the... Well, two things have been happening. They've raised capital and the directors and CEO have been selling stock hand over fist yeah. into the market. Because everyone's bet up their stock price. Yeah. And it's like getting so much attention and speculation. Yeah that what actual institutions are looking at AMC differently based on mass market hysteria and you know mass bidding up of the stock price based on not nothing else than from what we can tell is just speculation as a mode of investment thesis mm. yeah they just yeah, there's not even a real underlying fundamental investment case behind right, it because they weren't you know, ultimately that profitable prior to no COVID. they had a huge amount of debt they were making acquisitions and obviously like that business they've got a lot of fixed costs yeah and people like, going to the cinema i mean it was kind of in decline i guess with all of netflix and you yeah. know your software i looked at the stock home. on value investors club like two years ago it came up and because, um, you know, it was cheap cheap valuation, like eight times cash flow, something like that. But yeah. it had a lot of debt. Yeah. and um, A lot of debt. That's right. And cinema numbers decline very reliably every year by 1%. But mm. they make that up in pricing. So, they actually kind of tread water a bit. But So, um, unless these banks are kind of saying, maybe they're looking at AMC and they're thinking there's going to be like an influx of people coming back to the cinemas. So, sure, they might be sure. more profitable than they've ever been before. Yeah. yeah. But that that, that would be a logical reason to make the investment. I, sure. I doubt that's how they've gained the capital raise. They're just so talked about. But yeah, this this is the whole reflexivity. This is the, whole, the whole idea yeah. playing out in front of our eyes. Like yeah. if I'd gone based on facts, right? Looking at AMC's financials. Facts, fa- facts being what the their balance sheet, yep. their cash flow. If you looked at AMC based on their fundamentals, fundamentals, right? there ain't no yeah. way you can make. That investment makes sense. No, but their whole world has changed since the meme stock uprise to the point that they they looked at now as a different company yeah. because people's perceptions 
are that it's like a a trending stock. Yeah, it's trending and it's yeah. So he's and he's pulled this idea that it's not just about looking at the facts of a situation that tell you what's going to happen. Whenever you have thinking animals or actors or an unpredictability to it, you can get feedback loops and they can become self-reinforcing, self-reinforcing feedback loops. Yeah. So that that's the idea of reflexivity is to me is that you can have your situation, you can do all the research in the world, but you have to also ask the question, is there another element in this? Is there a human element that is really what's driving this investment or is the company's share price tracking very well to the prospects and the cash flows and the reality? Because then, then you know you're investing in something that has like a basis of reality. But you know, if you're investing in things where you know they become trendy and they have that geometric exponential curve to them, you know that it it can definitely be looking like it's self reinforcing. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm not sure how we're going to use the idea. And like, we haven't even finished the reflexivity book yet. But it's just some. It's just an interesting new idea to think. Okay, well, we know what value investing is. Value investing, looking at the facts, making a decision, and just waiting for people to agree with you. But how do you start to calibrate for people's you know, delusions and, you know, do you just, how do you handle that in the market? You know, is that another way to make money? Especially in this kind of a market as well, when you've got so many newbies yeah, who are effectively like, they're not only speculating and buying these things based on trends, mm. um, they're promoting it over the internet to like masses of people and yeah. they're changing masses of people's opinions as well. And when these people are using the recent price appreciation as justification for the, that it's working out, yeah. and all that is is the convincing of new people. People are piling on board and adding more conviction. Yeah. And at some point in time, that can actually become a real thing. Yeah. We have religions. I mean, that is what it is. A religion is a self-reinforcing feedback loop. Mm. Something happens of a supernatural nature. Someone, you know, teaches some great lessons and some stories and these stories get built upon and built upon and built upon and adopted by, you know, a community and a culture. And like we've seen this with every religion. Every religion starts small, convinces people and then uses that. Oh, look, look at how much we're growing. Look at how much, you know, this is, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a point about religions being bad or good. I'm just sort of saying that the trajectory. Hey, at least they turn a profit. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> no, I'd more liken it to Bitcoin than anything. Yeah. The form of a religion type adoption yeah. based on nothing. And purely the time that it's in existence and yeah. the amount of times that it survives after an upheaval. Yeah. It just adds to a religious belief. And yeah. it adds to this is a real thing. It's yeah. got nothing else going for it yeah. apart from a crowd of people believing in it and that crowd getting bigger. And that crowd's sticking around for a longer and longer time. And then it becomes something real. And this is when we've got companies who are willing to now put Bitcoin on the balance sheet. Yeah. I mean, 10 years ago, because you have imagined that happening. And that has only happened because people have held onto it and continue to buy into it. Yeah. And um, I guess that's that whole argument of the philosophy. Mm around why people are buying into Bitcoin and buying into crypto. Do you want to get into that? For sure. We've spent more and more time searching for the fundamental basis of why everyone is so excited about crypto. Now, 
the tracking of transactions, that's great. You know, the security, that's great. But what is it really that everyone is so excited about? Mm. Is it really because every single person that I talk to, apart from very few people, you know, of the probably over 100 people now I've spoken to about this who own crypto, very few actually understand what it does at all. Yeah, well, this is something that I've been trying to get my head around since I started this whole investing yeah. learning process. Yeah. And no. let's get this straight. Like, I'm, this is my first year into it, right? So, I've got a very basic understanding of all of these systems. But the way that I've tried to learn everything else is the way that I'm approaching crypto. Yeah. And that is drilling down to the start, right? The origin of its creation. That's the easiest way to understand anything. Like if you want to understand um, a scientific practice or a discovery of in physics or... If you want to understand evolution, read The Origin of Species. Yeah, you go back to yeah. basic principles. Yeah. How the inventor first came to discover yeah. this particular thing. Yeah. And if you can understand that and you build your basis from there, you can go on to understand everything else of course. All down the track. Yeah, it's a great way to do it. Start from the start. Yeah. yeah. So that's what... And like trying to understand this whole marketplace, it's just quite frankly a head fuck. Like, yeah, I've sat here and tried to write my Bitcoin memoirs, right? My memoirs. We we were young and there was no crypto. We could not understand <laughs> that. That joke's gonna make sense to nobody unless they've seen Burn After Reading. I think a few people might have seen that movie. But anyway, like I've sat here and wrote thousands of words on the topic, trying yeah. to like get my head around it, and yeah. I keep coming back to the same point. Everybody starts this conversation from we want decentralized finance. Yep. Okay, we want a store of wealth that can't be debased. Okay, yeah. this is the actual philosophy behind yeah. Bitcoin and crypto. Mm -hmm. It's the reason the what's his name, Satoshi or something? Satoshi. Satoshi. Why he mined the first block <clears throat> of Bitcoin? Right. Yeah. To be what separate the... from the yep. monetary system and to hold their wealth in a different asset class. Yep. That doesn't have government regulation. Yes. He started it to basically in response to the bailouts. It was started after the GFC and it was as a response to the, the printing of money mm -hmm. and saying like, we don't agree with this printing of money thing. It's debasing everyone's you know purchasing power. The, the money comes into the system in a very unequal way. It's not distributed equally to everyone. No. It's distributed through the bank, through the financial system, generally through the stock market and then through onto people. Eventually, it comes through uh, in a very unfair way. So, the Bitcoin was started as a response to that from yeah. what we can tell. But then it's like, well, if you're starting your argument from there, yeah. you are basically saying, well, our monetary system is a failure. It yes. needs to be thrown out and you've got to start again. Okay? That's very simple. That's Very simple. I like that idea too. I think everybody would. Of course. The whole blockchain idea, it's just basically an open ledger. Everyone can see every transaction from the beginning yep. in real time. Yep. That's beautiful. Sure. I love that too. I love reconciling. I love ledgers. Beautiful idea. Our system is not that simple. No. Saying that our whole monetary system is the problem, throw that away and give people individual access over their wealth with no one else to come in and manipulate it at all. Yep. And then that'll solve the problem. Well, in response to that, I would say, why do we have our monetary systems in place? Why do we have the Fed? Why do we have the um, control over interest rates, the levers that they can pull, hmm. um, the printing of money. 
why do all these things exist? Mm. They exist because of human nature. Yeah, the, the the Fed was created because the financial system was was distributed into like little banks everywhere, and those little banks started going bankrupt all the time, and people would lose their savings constantly. And the Fed was created to basically provide like a backstop to that. And then later it was added that you know this inflation thing when that gets out of control that really screws things up. And then there's a whole bunch of other things. You know, when there's a downturn, we've got fixed money, so we can't unless we you know borrow money from another country. We can't, you know, stimulate. The point is, I think, the point yeah. is to simplify this whole thing. It's a complex system. Mm-hmm. Governments are trying to regulate policy to be fair and equal for a wide range of people, a wide range of businesses. Our economy is mm. has multiple layers to it. it. It's like so complex. Everything feeds into each other. It's a fucking hard job to try and regulate that. Yeah. And it's a process of trial and error. Yeah. But the fundamental reason of why governments um, pull these levers and try and steer our economy in certain ways through the flow of money is because it's necessary to keep things balanced, to keep things in check. Yeah. Because if that was left up to each and every person, it would be absolute chaos. Absolute chaos. If we didn't have someone there steering the ship. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have someone there who could push interest rates up and down to try and come to an equilibrium. Yeah. Then what would our system look like? Yeah. Think about it for a moment. Like the reason why it gets to a certain point and interest rates need to be increased mm-hmm. is because humans are lending too much, Generally spending taking on, too much. Yeah. They're inflating <laughs> the costs of, yeah. of things in our economy. So someone needs to step in and, and be like, hey, kids, you're spending too much. Calm down. We gotta, Get off the sugar. We've got to put something in place now because yep. people are fucking the system again. If you're listening like from, from overseas or whatever, you know, the only thing I have in my mind where interest rates were raised was in the early 90s and um, there was a whole bunch of deregulation in the financial system and a whole bunch of debt came in mm-hmm. and people were speculating on all kinds of things. Like my dad tells me about he had a property that he bought a, um, a block of land and it doubled in like two years. You know, everyone's thinking that they're geniuses, but this inflationary thing that happens, it benefits the people who have assets who, you know, ahead of the curve, you could say. But then what happens is, is people start getting priced out. There's too much demand. Like like we're seeing now with timber, you know, t- timber prices have shot up mm. because there's been like a, you know, issue with the economy. So yeah, the idea that you would just let the economy run libertarian style, and that's the best way to do things, to me is simply good in principle, but does not work in theory because of human nature. Because of, again, feedback loops, reflexivity, people making emotional decisions. Bubbles are as old as time. You know, people getting overly excited about one thing. Mm. Yeah. You you just cannot leave people to run free in a system because I think they'll they'll collapse it as they have done thousands of times through all the other civilizations through history people have lived in, you know. And yes, of course, you know, the debasement of currency has also been a problem. But again, that's just another lever that these regulatory bodies can pull Mm. when it's absolutely necessary. And look, they probably misuse that. There's times that you can look back and it's like, well, they did too much there. They didn't do enough there. Yeah, they didn't need to do that at all. Like, it's not a perfect system by any means. But to say, to step outside that and say, we just need to throw it all away and give people their own free reign. Yep. It's just laughable. It's. I don't think you can have an understanding of humanity and think that that's going to work. No. Like it'd be a. It'd. It would be brutal. Mm. 
that system. Yeah. Survival of the fittest, really. Yeah, I think so too. I think the people that are in that system where there is, you know, no government intervention, you know, you wouldn't have social programs. And that's what some like libertarians believe. They believe that you shouldn't have social programs. They believe that the government is basically wasteful, you know, and that you shouldn't have taxes and you should have any of those things. But those people are so ideological and they are so fixated on the idea of how good that would be mm. if there was no internet. I mean, sorry, if there was no government, they're just in love with that idea. And, you know, it hasn't, it's been tested. Societies were running without governments for thousands of years. Go back and look at them and see how they've all turned out. You know, you need some kind of structure to care for, you know, the higher needs of people that are above their day-to-day needs. Mm. Because the system is so complex, you need people who understand the whole system, like you were saying, who can, at the end of the day, they may not do the right thing 100%. They might act a little bit too strongly, a little bit too weakly. But at least you've got someone there. Yeah. The answer isn't just to take them away. Yeah. That doesn't solve your problem because ultimately, what are bubbles and bursts caused by? It's not caused by Low interest the government. Rates. No. Like, look at the housing market bubble yeah. in America. What was that caused by? Low interest rates. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was part of it. Sure. You know, it's, it's it, a mess. They weren't that low. They were like yeah. 5% or something. It was caused by the greedy bankers taking advantage of ignorant people who yep. weren't financially literate, uh, overlending to them, yep. housing prices shooting up every yep. step of the way, mortgaging, 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 packaging those mortgages into financial instruments, yep. selling them to institutions, yep. you know, more greedy people getting greedier. That's not ultimately the government. Actually, that, if the government yeah. was regulating that more heavily, it might have stopped it from happening. Exactly. But at some point in time, when it reached its peak because of humans, right? Yeah. Corrupt humans, good and bad, you know. A lack of information. You innocent know. people getting on board something yeah. that they think is going to grow their wealth. Yeah. You know, you've got all sorts of people in this mixture. You take your average person who's, you know, got a bit of equity in their home. They get a call from their mortgage broker and says, look, your house price has gone up a hundred grand. You know, do you want to borrow 30 grand at, you know, 3%? Oh, I'll put it in your account tomorrow. Mm -hmm. 99 over a hundred people are going to say yes to that. Well, the the government's not causing that problem. The government is not the one who is coming in and forcing that person to take the money or offering them to take the money. Yes, okay, that they perhaps have reduced interest rates to a level where there is, they're encouraging speculation. But and they're not what's keeping the a close enough eye on it. Perhaps, and you know yeah. what? They're not also setting those incentives for the bankers to meet those get targets. people to increase yeah. their increase their leveraging. Yeah. You know, they're not setting the incentives and those incentives are what really set the whole thing off. Yeah. I think that the it's so hard because you want more regulation but you don't want more cost. So you want a more sensible system. You want less aggression. You want less and I think that you get that from people having skin in the game, you know, and I think you get that from people running these corporations and running these organizations and having people in these companies who have a lot of their pay tied to the actual success of the whole company. Nassim Taleb talks about Bob Rubin. So he was running Citigroup, I think. The guy made $120 million in five years and he didn't make it because of you know he was really intelligent or anything he made it because he was taking a crazy amount of risk in things that would only go bad every 10 years so you, you can't he'd be out of the company before then yeah exactly take his payday and go and then you know yeah to hell with all the people holding the bag the who are the clients so when, when you've got a system where someone could come in make a couple of million dollars 
get out of there and you know the, com- the, 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 the company explodes you know five years later because of some insurance policy that they wrote at the wrong price mm. you know for years and years is the problem the government setting the interest rate at one percent or is the problem that people are not incentivized to be attached to the long-term success of our systems mm. that's what i think needs to happen because the biggest problem that you got from the biggest legitimate criticism i think of the government's intervention in the economic system is the creation of the moral hazard which i don't think it's something we've talked about too much but the idea that now that the government knows i mean sorry the um the average bank or the average you know investor knows that if anything gets too bad the government will step in you know knowing that is the equivalent to having like you know a kid who knows that no matter how stupid they make their decisions at the end of the day mummy and daddy will always be there to save you you know that kid is going to make some worse decisions compared to a kid who knows that they're responsible and there's no one going to come come and save you mm-hmm. like you know, both both of us grew up with. I mean, we didn't have any big financial backers behind us. We, we've never had to be able to rely on somebody. You know, if we get ourselves in trouble, we're able to call someone up and say, "Oh, can I have you know twenty, thirty grand?" No, no. you know, and and, and that's cre- not. And, and that's created like a lot of a different mindset. You know, if we're going to take an action, we're going to do something. We have to be able to wear it if it goes bad. You know, whereas a lot of people, they always have mummy and daddy there to bail them out. And it works, the, it works the same in the financial system. It, that is so true, though, because it's um, for, like, trust fund kids, right? Yeah. See how they use their wealth. They don't respect it because they haven't earned it. Yeah. When you earn every dollar, you have, like, the sense of um, responsibility mm. to use that wealth wisely. Yeah. But yeah. You, you, th- you, might, you might still take risk, but you'll take risk in a, a different way, you know, in a different way that's more measured and um, more responsible, I you think. Just, yeah. You, you appreciate the fact that money is real. Money can achieve real things in the real world. Yeah. And you don't want to waste that opportunity no. to be productive with what you have. Exactly. Yeah. But, but the, the thought that, yeah, bubbles and bursts are created by the government, well, that's clearly not true. It's, it's created by not. humans. And to think that crypto is going to solve that phenomenon... It's like, is crypto not being run by humans as well? Mm-hmm. Like, do we not have people who have already kind of um, conned people? Those the, crypto the, yeah. coins that have already because gone it's... bust and the, the money's been taken out. It's like, oh, well, ha-ha, screw you all. Like, yeah. this is just humans. It's humans. human nature. It's humans, and we've got yeah. to deal the best way possible. I mean, we, we evolved to live in small groups with scarce resources you know, where bad things happened all the time. We are not evolved for this current system that we live in. The complexity of our of our world is so much greater. So we don't, you know, obviously we're not working, are we, love? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Working right now. Are we? No, but we, like, what I'm saying is like, we have our time, eh? Like we have time to look at some of these systems and think about capitalism versus communism. And like, we've done a lot of talking and a lot of research about this stuff. And I feel like I'm just scratching the surface of understanding these systems and maybe another 20 years I might actually begin to develop you know an opinion about what should be done that's the complexity of the world that we live in and just because you you think that it would be better if things were decentralized and the government didn't have you know as large a role to play as they do now well that that hypothesis can't really be tested it can be tested by history you can look back and see and see how civilizations worked out that had no top-down government it doesn't work out too well <laughs> So, but they're not interested in that. 
people using the current examples, the idea of, you know, the bailouts, oh, that's bad. Therefore, this is the reason for crypto. And I just think it's at this stage from all the research we've done, it's a solution in search of a problem. Yeah. You know? That's right. It's It's not a solution, but we're just improving it century by century. Yeah. But the fact that people think crypto is not just going to turn into a traditional regulated system, just another alternative in our asset class. Yep is pretty hilarious like it's got if you want to use your crypto in the real world you yep. have to go through institutions these are tra- traditional methods to use yeah. it and um the bigger it gets the more regulated and centralized it's gonna have to get as well it just yeah. goes hand in hand and, and, tr- I think- and, and, and if, you, if you're gonna say you know fuck the system fine i understand some elements of the system they suck they're not fair Okay, well, let's fix those things, all right? Let's be specific. Let's look at the actual problem. Let's look at the fact that, you know, a banker can make $10 million and then because of the, you know, irresponsibility with which they've, you know, taken risk and with which they've packaged risk and they've hidden risk because of their actions, you know, let's get that money back from them. Let's let's prosecute people who have done things that are risky, that cost people their homes, that cost people their finances, you know? Or not even prosecute, right? Just don't put them in the same job again. These people just go from bank to bank to bank. Yeah. No matter what they've done in the past, somehow they still maintain their reputation. I mean, these people, they generally look look the part. They sound the part. You know, they say the right words. They use the right buzzwords. But at the end of the day, if you're losing money, (laughs) you know, if you're not fundamentally good at what you're doing, you need to be held accountable. And that's where we, as you know, investors with our own capital, we've got to skin in the game. You know, if we express an opinion, it's because it's ten percent of our portfolio. And if the company goes bad, we lose the money. You know, and I'm just sick of hearing people express opinions about things where they have no actual financial stake, or they have no actual, they haven't taken an action. So they've got a strong opinion, but they haven't taken an action that backs up. They actually even have a strong opinion. Negativity always sounds smarter than positivity, which is why you've got all these people always, you know, oh, negative on this, negative on that. Well, if you're negative, go short. If it's your opinion, back it up. Take, yeah. take, take the risk. Don't, don't talk about it. And if you're not that confident in it, well, don't talk about it so confidently. Exactly. Talk about it, yeah. but caveat it with, you know what, I don't actually hold any positions in this. I don't have any skin in the game. These are purely just thoughts in my head. Exactly. Which is our whole opinion about Bitcoin falls in that category. <laughs> you know, we... Don't understand it. We've tried. Maybe we're just too dumb. I don't know. But it just doesn't make any sense. And it has so many similarities between religions in terms of the, just the blind focus on the future and the, the, the use of buzzwords and the comparisons to the internet. Yeah, well, the reason why, you know, this, this problem with crypto is because just like the internet, in the early days of the internet, well, you know how the internet's worked out. You know, so draw your own conclusion from that. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. I'd like to get an understanding of the majority of crypto and NFT holders or traders. Yeah, I'd love like, to get that I'd love to understand what their philosophy really is. Yeah. Like, are most people aware of the decentralized debasement thesis? Is that why they're holding these coins? Yeah. Or are they just doing it because they've heard about it and they don't want to miss out? doesn't make me feel very confident. I, I would feel so much better if... Every person I spoke to who owns crypto like understood the technology better than me, at which point I would say, look, I don't know what 
is going on here and this could very well be something revolutionary. Yeah, I'm just trying to ascertain whether this is really just a trend yeah. or if people are predominantly on board with this ethos. Because if most people are aware of that and yeah. understand the intricacies of it, that's going to add to their um, conviction to hold. And that's the other thing about it, which is that people who are the richest, who made, who made the most money out of Bitcoin are the ones who have seen it fall 50% and they've held. So you've basically the, the current holders of Bitcoin are the ones who've been trained to go through these ups and downs, like these cycles. And they seem to get more and more religious with each drop. More and more confident in it. But just because you've survived every drop from now on, it only takes one drop to be a permanent loss of capital. I don't know. You just because you haven't got that cash flow to hold to, it's just you haven't got anything to hold to. No, not really. And and when I come back to the point in my mind of like they'll eventually if they do legitimize themselves, yeah. they'll eventually just function as something else in our financial system that you can put your money in. Yeah. It's not reinventing the system. There's really, no free lunch, yeah. They have to go through for real world people to use these coins in the real world, you have to go through existing financial instruments. You got to use FBOS machines and ATM yep. machines and credit cards. <laughs> yeah, it's still got to work within that system eventually if it does want to be legitimate. Yeah, for sure. And the fact that Mastercard and Visa have hopped on to join with these coins so early on tells me that they're going to hold on to the customers. Mm-hmm. They're the middleman again. You've already got a middleman on something that's just starting. So when that, if this actually does increase in adoption and more and more people use crypto, they're not going to be using Coinbase. Like they'll use Coinbase to buy the crypto and set up their Visa or MasterCard. Yeah. Yeah. And then they'll use Visa and MasterCard. You still need something that responds to reality in order to use it. And each individual is taking that risk of that conversion rate, you when you convert it back, that coin back to dollars yeah. through Visa or MasterCard to use it to buy something real, yeah. you might be losing a lot of money in that conversion back because yeah. coins and, and Bitcoin, they all are so volatile yeah. and the value just goes up and down massively. So if you want to use crypto to yep. buy bread and milk and fuel, one day you might pay... $500 for a tank of fuel and the next day $2. Like, how how do you function in reality yeah, yeah. Yeah, with yeah. this system? Like, it's got to get so much more... So much more efficient. There needs to be so much more work done in terms of changing the system. And what's the incentive to change the current system for the average person? Mm. Like, what's their... Why is your dad or my dad, 50-year-old men who just want to go to work and, you know, come home... Why are they going to want to adopt this mode of payment? And I understand that I'm now talking about like Bitcoin in terms of if it's used for a real currency, mm. not just a store of value. Yeah. You know, but I think most people who are still on the Bitcoin bandwagon, they are in the they are in the camp of this is going to be a store of value and a form of transaction medium because otherwise mm. you can't make the the case make sense that it'd be so high. Um, yeah, it, well, it's the wider adoption yeah. that proves it more and more. So, yeah. if you want it to be adopted by more people, you have to ask the question, why are these people going to buy it? Why is your mum going to buy Bitcoin? Yeah. What's she going to use it for? Yeah. Well, why is she going to care to hold that? 
Yeah. Along with her usual dollars, you know. And because it's going up in price is not a reason to hold something. That may be why people are holding it at the moment. But for something to go up in price, somebody needs to pay a higher price than you for it. Mm. You know, if price appreciation is your only reason to hold on to something, then you're in a Ponzi scheme. You're in a pyramid scheme. You know, if there's nothing underlying happening, unfortunately, that is what a pyramid scheme is defined as, the definition. Yeah. So, not positive, I don't think. And we haven't even touched on my my China conspiracy theory. <laughs> well, let's let's go there, please. Should that's, I? Oh, fuck yeah. Should I put it's this hilarious. out into the world? I don't know. Oh, I think so. Why well, not? It's just a theory. Just Honestly, a theory. everything I say needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Like Everything I say needs to be taken with a jar of salt. <laughs> no, you're more... Everything you say is way more legit than what I say. Let's get that clear. <laughs> but anyway, my China conspiracy, which is total conspiracy, but I think it's interesting. Well, let's start with the fact that we said on an earlier like podcast, a few podcasts ago, that about 80% of Bitcoin mining is currently taking place in Iran, China. And I always forget the third country. Is it Russia? Russia. No. Yeah, I think, I think so. Russia, Russia, China, Iran. All those dodgy places. The baddies. You got the goodies and the, no, you don't. The goodies and the baddies. Um, so that's where the mining for new Bitcoin. So that's where the encouragement of the new supply is coming from. And obviously, the question is, well, why are they spending so much time What's on the this? Incentive? What's their reason to do this? Because this is more of an American phenomenon. China, from what we can tell, there's very little Bitcoin fervor in China. They're they're opposed to it. I think they've banned it, but they've taken steps to start to say that they're you know against it, and they've it's been for, for six years have been developing their own Chinese cryptocurrency conspiracy theory. Cass, go. Yeah, well, my theory is that Cass's conspiracy corner. Yeah, cool. I like that. My theory is that um, China has been mining Bitcoin, selling it to Americans, and. With each transaction, they're selling off Bitcoin and getting US dollar. Yep. Okay. US dollar is the main global currency for trade. So sure. you can't really tell what China's doing with the US dollars. Yeah. But they have been buying up a lot of gold. So I'm thinking they plan on like dumping all the Bitcoin they mine to Americans. Each time the US dollar is coming back to them, they're getting more and more US dollar yep. as Bitcoin is increasing yep. in value with those us dollars they're using those to buy gold so they're converting us dollars to gold because us dollars losing value with yep. the money printing mm-hmm. and gold is pretty stable yep but they're also at the same time creating their digital yuan so my theory is that they're going to launch digital yuan and they're going to back it to gold because they're going to have so much gold reserves yeah. through this whole they're basically rinsing money, washing Bitcoin into gold through the US dollar. And then they're, they're gonna, they could potentially leverage the strength of gold because the, the gold-backed digital yuan will have the positives of cryptocurrency. Because China for a long and Russia for a long time have have known that it's America's real strength that that they're the reserve currency of the world. Because them being the reserve currency of the world means that when their economy gets in trouble. They can print US dollars and not necessarily get inflation in their country mm. because those dollars can be spent in a, in America, you know, but then, then they could perhaps go out of the country and they can then be spread. Um, so, they, they get the benefits of the printing without any of the costs, basically. 
But China has for a long time hated that. And if China could, perhaps it uses some of their US dollars they've accumulated to push that money back into America at the wrong time, Mm. you know, creating inflation, they then could have the power to crash Bitcoin. I mean, we've learned that Bitcoin- Through banning it. Yeah. Through through banning it. I mean, if China banned Bitcoin and then, oh, a month later, oh, some crazy hackers, they've done one of those 51% attacks and the whole Bitcoin network goes down. You think about what kind of chaos that would cause in the global financial system. Like that, that's a pretty clear set of actions that would, you know- and then you've got a cryptocurrency in China yeah. backed by gold. So it's not even, it's got a fundamental attached to it yeah. with everything good about crypto yeah. um, in a country that's probably going to be the next financial world power. World power. Yeah. I just Almost. think it's a, it's a genius strategy. <sighs> yeah. But this is my conspiracy. It's all in my head. So it's a conspiracy. Yeah. If, and, and if anyone hears this and, you know, if we've like missed some. Uh, you know, there's some big, some big flaws in, in that argument. I bet there is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, love. Oh, I bet there's lots. But you can see, you, you can see where the, the logical chain. I mean, yeah, China has always been opposed to America's, you know, financial supremacy and them being the reserve-backed currency, and they've always seen that as a structural problem that they'd love to overcome. So you can understand why the motivation would come to do it. Mm. And you know, developing a digital yuan for six years—they're they're really far ahead of this. You know, no one, no one in America has been working on, um, you know, at a government level, has been working on cryptocurrency for six years. So, oh. it's fascinating that they they were doing that, and probably an area for more research. I think. If you got this far, thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation. Now, if you'd like to become my twenty second or my forty third follower on Twitter, links are in the show notes below. Mitch, anything else? Nothing to add.